You're listening to The Feast, a podcast where we explore the meals that made history. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And today we are bringing you another bonus holiday episode before season four kicks off on January 7th, 2020. Now, we've already talked about some boozy options for your holiday table, with the hearty orange liqueur made by Vitae Spirits of Virginia. But how about what to eat during this holiday season? Now, in the past, we've looked at some epic Christmas feasts. You might remember our episode about the boar's head dating back to medieval England, a tradition still celebrated in not only Oxford University colleges, but also in places like Louisville, Kentucky. Eating a boar's head for Christmas may have gone slightly out of mainstream fashion, but even today, big, hearty, meat-based main courses are still pretty popular for the holidays. In Canada and England, for example, it's often a turkey that is front and center on a Christmas Day dining room table. Whereas in the U.S., where Thanksgiving dinner is only a few short weeks in the rearview mirror, Many families opt for another kind of protein as the main course, often ham or roast beef. Ham, of course, can also be found on many Caribbean Christmas tables, and it's often veal or even roast suckling pig in Argentina, just to take another few examples of meat-heavy Christmas main course traditions. So much food around the holidays has meaning, whether it's making time-honored recipes we remember from childhood, or continuing a tradition that may be hundreds of years in the making. We may not understand why we make many of our holiday food traditions. What counts, of course, is that the food brings together family and friends to celebrate. Which may be the exact reason that every Christmas, in a small town in West Virginia, and indeed in many Italian-American family homes around the country, families prepare for an epic culinary marathon just before Christmas making seven different seafood dishes to eat on Christmas Eve, a tradition appropriately enough called the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Now, what exactly is this tradition, you might ask? Well, let's let the experts explain. What was Juke talking about? Seven... The seven fishes? Yeah. The Feast of the Seven Fishes. It's something we do every Christmas Eve. I mean, all the Italians around here do it. What eat? seven kinds of fish? We have seven, or we're supposed to. We honestly make so many different kinds of dishes, I'm not sure if we're in some sort of violation or not. Some families only do three or five, some do more. I think the only thing is it just has to be an odd number. Somebody told me that maybe it has something to do with representing the seven sacraments. But uh, it's not like a big religious thing for us though, you know? I mean, we cook fish and we party and... Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much it. The whole family's there, friends. It's a blast. Wow, God. I, Christmas Eve at my house is the most quiet night of the year. <laughs> I mean, we don't do anything. Oh, in our house, it's the loudest, which is pretty scary, actually, Yeah, now that I think about it. <laughs> the thing is, the feast, it's one of those about the journey things, you know? Yeah. Like, getting there, being the fun of it and all. Everyone spends so much time on the preparation, the dinner itself, it's, it's almost a letdown. It takes that long? Oh, yeah. All right, take the bacala. It's a real pain in the ass. Bacala is a codfish that's been heavily salted to preserve it, so it comes stiff as a board, and you have to soak in the water for three days, always changing the water. I mean, grandfather, my great uncles, that's their thing, they're obsessed with it. So most of that we bake in tomato sauce, and the rest we roll into balls and deep fry. Whiting's a nice plain white fish. We fry them in a cast iron skillet with garlic and olive oil and salt and pepper. 
There's a really small fish called smelt. I love them. When we were kids, we'd have these big eating contests. We didn't always have shrimp. It was too expensive. But Uncle Frankie started bringing it one year, and he fixes it deep fried. The oysters, we just eat raw, except for a couple we throw in the soup. There's eel, which we bread and deep fry in olive oil and then marinate in some kind of vinegar type thing my grandfather makes. And last but certainly not least, there's calamari. Calamari is Italian for squid. And that we fix a whole bunch of different ways, stuffed and baked, fried. I like boiling it and marinating it in vinegar and garlic and served cold. That's it. That's our seven. What you just heard is a clip from the new movie called Appropriately Enough, The Feast of the Seven Fishes, written and directed by Robert Tunnell. The story focuses on that small West Virginia town that I was telling you about earlier and how one Italian-American family celebrates the holidays with a massive seafood meal. Set in the 1980s, it's essentially a food movie with a little romantic comedy thrown in on the side. And although the movie itself is fictional, the town, the characters, and of course, the feast itself all come directly from Robert Tunnell's experience growing up in West Virginia, and of course his own family celebrations of the Feast of the Seven Fishes on Christmas Eve. And before you think that his family was the only one celebrating the feast, the annual holiday tradition has become such a big deal in his hometown of Fairmont, West Virginia, that the town has actually begun to hold an annual festival in honor of it, featuring music, holiday lights, and, of course, more seafood dishes than you can shake a stick at. Robert has been an advocate of the Feast of the Seven Fishes for years, first publishing a graphic novel about the tradition in the early 2000s, followed by a cookbook featuring traditional dishes from the feast. And now, with the international release of his film in 2019, it's easy to say that Robert Tunnell is the biggest champion of the Feast of the Seven Fishes around. Late November, we had the opportunity to sit down with Robert and chat with him about his new film, his experiences growing up in West Virginia, and of course, all the things that go into this fabulous culinary tradition. My name is Robert Tunnell, and I'm the writer-director of Feast of the Seven Fishes. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing about it is that nobody's quite sure, you know, how it got started or when. I mean, you'll hear, you'll hear people argue about when was it first called Feast of the Seven Fishes, or they don't hear, you hear people say they don't do this in Italy, which, and my response is, so two million Italian immigrants spontaneously came to America without any form of mass communication between them and decided to all start cooking fish on Christmas Eve. I don't think so. It was called La Vigilia, the Vigil for the Christ Child, and it in some form was celebrated at least in, in southern Italy. I didn't even know why we did it. I, You know, I always say when you're a kid, you're busy, you know, being a kid. I, I didn't think to ask anybody. It's just I knew it was delicious, and we had it on Christmas Eve. And I think my mom in the late 80s, I finally said, you know, why do we do this? And she said, well, that's the Feast of the Seven Fishes. And it was the first time I'd ever heard the phrase. We didn't say it. You know, we were just too busy doing it. My great-grandmother, who first hosted it for us, I mean, it was like, I, I used to think she was like supernatural. She could multiply food. Her yard was legendary in, in, in the neighborhood because she could just, it was like, you know, it was like a store. You could just get almost anything you wanted out of the store. She made her own pasta. She made her own wine. You know, she you know, she baked her own bread. She grew the tomatoes. She grew the basil. She grew everything. And the food just, I just never tasted food like that anywhere else. And, um, Christmas Eve, especially, you know, she would she would make this giant meal on a wood burning stove in her in her basement, which was 
you know, I'm being kind when I'm calling it a basement. And we would all crowd in down there and, and just have this amazingly exotic seafood meal. You know, there's a, a bit of a description in the film about it's called the Feast of the Seven Fishes, but it's not necessarily always seven. Now, was it seven in, in your family tradition or was it nine or was it 13? There seems to be an odd number element going in there. You know, I, I don't remember ever being hung up on it. If I look back as, as a kid, yeah, there would be, I would say there were seven as I'm remembering. But over the years as she got older, you know, she kind of dropped the eel. She, she kind of stopped fooling with, I think by the time she had nine, she's like, I'm not going to deal with this bakala. But at my house now, I don't know what it is. You know, it's like feast of 17 fishes. We go crazy for it. I mean, it's become, I think it's way more, I think even, I think it probably always, it was more of a cultural family thing, you know, than it was trying to check some sort of box. Was it always, you know, the same recipes for each of the each of the dishes, shall we say? Like, were was the, the calamari recipe always the same or were there little variations or that was the one calamari recipe? And that's that's what you you had to make if you were going to make calamari. In in our family that there were two. Um, there was the stuffed with red sauce and then without which is kind of like drenched in olive oil and cheese, and, and which is wonderful, too. But, you know, the thing is that if you, you go from town to town, you go from house to house, everybody's got their spin on stuff. Like, I dropped the way we used to do bacala in favor of my, my friends that I grew up with. They were, when I was collecting recipes and we did the book, um, they did deep-fried bacala balls. And after I had those ones, I was like, man, this is what we're having. And I keep coming back to the same thing. You know, it's, the, it's that act of creating this meal together and of sharing it together and of actually you know, generating an authentic memory and experience instead of being on some treadmill, you know, running around trying to buy stuff and, you know, you know, trying to somehow art direct the perfect Christmas instead of just actually living it. That's what's important to me is is in engaging in the process. You know, does that make sense? I mean, it's crazy. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think you show that very well in the film. And that's what I was going to ask about as well of it's clearly, you know, whether it's seven or 17 dishes, this has to be in some way a kind of a family affair of, of making the dishes, that this is something that one person cannot achieve on, on their own. Um, so it almost the, the cooking process ends up being more of the, the kind of family gathering together, almost more than the eating of it. I'm not sure if that's going too far. I, I'd love to know if, if you see the same thing. I actually do. I mean, although the food is just, it, it's so delicious. And we, my wife, Shannon, she's always bringing in new ideas. She wants to try different things. But, you know, we, last year, last year, I think we had, I think it was only, I think we were down to 26 for dinner. You, you press a lot of people into service, you know, when you're <laughs> doing that. And my father-in-law, Larry, he's, you know, he's outside. We, we tried, we, we started putting some of the cooking outside. So we definitely press people into service. Uh, so you can get it all done. Even though we start, you know, we start in the morning, inevitably, you know, I tried to capture that in the film, you know, that, that last 45 minutes to an hour is just insanity, trying to have everything come off, close, you know, close to the same time. And I'm wondering, do you still, um, I know the the film is based in West Virginia, um, where I believe you also grew up. Um, is that still where you, you go back to um, for the holidays and make the make the feast every year? Actually, um, I cut out of L.A. a long time ago and went back to West Virginia. We, we didn't want to raise our kids in L.A., and so we, we lived back. Maybe not the greatest career move, but we like it. And 
down and we have a, a farm out in the country where we're trying to grow heirloom cider apples and forage and do all this craziness. And But yeah, I mean, we literally shot in my grandparents' house. We rented it. We shot there. We shot on the streets of, even though I'm not Tony and this isn't me, a lot of this is true. A lot of this did happen or would have happened similar to this. So I just didn't think there was any place else that we could shoot it other than there. Although, interestingly enough, in previews, you know, audiences, they're like, this is my family. This is my town. I think by staying true to what we did and who we are, it, it kind of developed a, a universality for maybe not just Italian-Americans, but maybe just for, for people who are used to having crazy family tradition. Oh, yes. And getting everyone together and also the, the family dynamics of who cooks what when, where, and who's put on, I believe, shrimp cleaning duty, um, and who is responsible for different dishes. Absolutely, that rings true to me as well. But one of the things I wanted to try to do with the film, and, and I sort of couldn't articulate it for quite a while, but it really struck me a few years ago. My, I was watching Spielberg's Lincoln with my wife and my daughter. And I know a lot about Civil War history, and even though my wife's a historian, she really didn't. That wasn't her era that she was focused on. And as we watched the movie, and I'm I'm just caught up in the movie, they're wickying through the whole thing. Well, you know, who is Seward? Who's the, you know, they're looking up all this in, tangential information that they want because it's enriching the experience. And at first, it freaked me out, but then I realized, and this is where we are. And I thought, well, with Space Beast, I'm going to try to make a, a, a wiki of a film. So that because the truth is, particularly the younger people now, you know, they stop, they pause, they go back, they don't. It's not simply a, you know, for me going to, you know, going to the movies, like going to church, right? You know, it's shut up, be very, very quiet, study every frame. And it's a linear experience. But I've got to be realistic. That's kind of not where we are now. So I was sort of hoping with the film that you know, if you wanted to, if you're really paying attention, you can kind of pretty much figure out how to make most of this stuff, or at least have a have a decent idea of it. And so in that respect, that's why I wanted to do the kind of mixed media, you know, making of sequence. I love there are our notes in in the film um, that kind of tie into, you know, the, the, the predecessor, I suppose, of the film, of it being a graphic novel and, and elements of it being almost a visual cookbook in a way. That, that's what I was going for. I, I like the idea of mixed media and film. I, I do a lot of other things, you know, commercials and image films and different things. And I'm constantly sort of embedding text or a different look or different footage. And we did, we just sort of made that a motif on the film, you know, whether it's the eight millimeter sequences or the stock footage sequences or the, you know, the word balloons. We even try to do a fumetti, you know, an Italian comic. If you notice in one segment there, it's like those, you know, in, in Italy, they have those kind of picture comics, you know, where there's pictures of things, but then there's word balloons, like in a comic book. I was even trying to do that. Now, just to give you an idea of how much the recipes for the various fish dishes are baked into Robert's movie, here's a snippet of the film in which one of the characters, along with the audience, learns how to make a fish soup, which includes the highly debatable inclusion of a certain ingredient. Soup is Tony's favorite. What you want to do is put all kinds of fish in there, except okay. for the shellfish. That you wait until the end. Last couple minutes, you throw that in. And when it's done, you take chunks of hard bread and you toss it in there. And... Don't forget the saffron. No, don't do the saffron. I don't do it with... Mm. <laughs> Frankie! What? I don't do it with the saffron. That's not how mom and dad did it. So I don't... mom and dad could afford saffron. Believe me, they would have added it to this. It's wonderful. I ah, uh, I picked it up in Montreal. Mm, wow, I hear Montreal is amazing. What were you doing up there? Oh, uh, you know, business. Hmm. 
we'll be back with more from Robert and the history of the Feast of the Seven Fishes after a quick word from one of our sponsors. I wanted to ask as well, you know, tracing the the long history of, uh, you know, your interest in this tradition and the various ways that you've explored it, because the graphic novel came out in... Uh, the graphic novel was 2005, but it, it actually was an online comic strip first. And I'd just love to know about your process, choosing that form of media to start with to explore the tradition, and then expanding from there. And here we have, you know, 2019, now the feature film. Um, You know, just tracing that from enjoying the tradition as a, as a kid to then revisiting it in a form of kind of the comic and, and the graphic novel and then cookbook and then and now the film. If you could just maybe trace the chronology of how you decided to choose each format and how they've maybe built on each other. I was doing my, the first film I directed um, was a children's film up in Canada called Kids Around Table with, with um, Malcolm McDowell, Michael Ironside. And I know I had just become acutely aware that people were passing away and I had always had such a deep, affection for, for Christmas Eve, for this tradition, that um, I got a high eight camera and I flew in uh, from Montreal and my grandfather was alive and my great uncles. And I filmed, I just videotaped them cooking, the, you know, doing the whole thing. And it was just it was so much fun. But that's all I did. I kind of wanted to save it. You know, I kind of had it cut together and just everybody having a good time. And then through the years, I guess it was just percolating in the back of my head, but you know, I wanted to do, I, I loved at the time, I just loved horror. And I, and I had two things sort of happened. I had done a, um, a graphic novel called The Black Forest with Todd Livingston and Neil Vokes for Image Comics. And it had gotten, it had sold really well. It was sold out like in just a few weeks and it had gotten great reviews. And so I had this opportunity. And at the same time, I had written a horror picture that had gotten, although I never shot it, but they, they're getting ready to shoot it now. Finally, but they had, that had gotten picked up. And, you know, because I, I said, no, I don't want to do a horror picture next. Now I want to do this. I, I think this could be a great romantic comedy. And my manager at the time told me I was an idiot. Like, I got no support. Um, so I was fascinated by online digital comics. I had friends like my friend Mark Wheatley, my friend Mike Oman, different guys were doing online comics. And I thought they were just wonderful. And I just like storytelling, you know. I, I just wanted to play with it. So we started it as a daily comic strip. And we're shocked to discover in a few months, we had like 50,000 readers. And so the next year, my, my brother, Jeff, who's also a producer on the movie, we formed what is now Allegheny Image Factory. And we, we published the book and, and the book got nominated for the Eisner Award for Best Graphic Novel, which is like, you know, which is a big, big deal. So I adapted, I started adapting for a screenplay. And at the time, I just, we just couldn't get traction with it and I couldn't. Or there was traction, people wanted it, but, uh, you know, they said, well, no, you can't direct this. It's got to be a better director. And I'm like, that's my life. But we just didn't give up. We eventually, with my other other two producers, John Michaels and Scott Whitty, uh, the three of them and, and myself, we, we somehow pulled it off. And, you know, it just, it was just, it's been a funny thing. And you know, in the middle of that, I guess I should say that my hometown, Fairmont, West Virginia, they started the Feast of Seven Fishes Festival, which is the second Saturday of December every year and it's a fantastic street fair and my wife does what they call festival Kachina, kind of an intimate cooking school it's just it's a wonderful thing a lot of live music you know and good food and you know that's why we wanted to go back there and shoot it because it was, the community was just so receptive to it 
yeah, that's sort of the, I guess that's the total evolution. And he told me before we even started that I would never get a cast like this. And then, of course, he got this incredible cast. I didn't see that coming, if I'm being brutally honest. I really didn't know we'd get this many incredible actors to do it, but we did. I think you can see just how dedicated they are to the, telling this wonderful story. I, I'd love to go back and ask about the festival, um, how how it works. Um, is it that everyone comes out and and makes one of the one of the dishes or they all have their version of a recipe. Um, how does the Feast of the Seven Fishes Festival work now in West Virginia? Well, what happens is on Friday night, and this year it'll be Friday, December 13th, my wife and six other chefs or cooks or Italians or somebody will, will demonstrate seven dishes for, for a pretty small crowd, usually maybe 125 people. And it's a really fun event. And it's just, Really, the mission is to preserve the recipe and to spread the word. And it's just gotten to be this thing now where we usually know like 90% of the crowd because they come every year. Then the next day, starting about 10, 30, 11 in the morning, they block down Monroe Street. You know, in Paramount, like so many small town, like, you know, small town America, like there's not a lot of stores like there used to be. I mean, it's, you know, it's in the process of hopefully revitalizing. It's, just, it's safe. It's not, you know, it's not like that. It's just typical. Mm-hmm. This one street, they just blow it up. You get ten, twelve thousand people show up, and there's vendors who are maybe selling anything from smelt to, you know, of course, wine and beer and and gifts or things that are related to Italian culture. And uh, there's an old fire hall, and inside there, they're playing polkas, or you've got a Sinatra cover band or whatever. <laughs> and it is a lot of heated, covered space, and people just they just love it. It's a it's a homecoming. And what I'm happy about with the festival. When Shannon and I got involved in it, because she was the co-chair, um, we worked through Main Street Paramount. Um, we we really wanted it to be in the way that Christmas Eve for us is not dictated by consumerism or you know or just running the holiday treadmill. We wanted that that one Saturday was a chance when people could just instead of you know saying oh I got to go buy this perfect present or I've got to run here I've got to run here they could actually go somewhere see hundreds of people maybe that they know or don't know and actually, you know, celebrate and, and be together and enjoy food and whether Italian or not isn't is superfluous. And it's really just turned into something special. I I would actually love to know I mean I want to know all about the festival I and, and would love to go. But you know, I was thinking about this as you were mentioning um, the cast and, and you know, as we're talking about the recipes and the food of the festival, I would love to know about the food that was made while you were filming, um, you know, because food is such a huge component of, as you said, most of the film. Were these the, the real recipes that you were cooking or what was the movie magic that went into depicting the, the, the various dishes? And was this just a banquet the entire time on set that people were able to eat and enjoy all this great food? Or were there, you know, stunt doubles for the calamari? Well, sadly, <laughs> sadly. Well, first of all, uh, you know, I feel like I'm drawing my wife like a gun, but Shannon did prepare and style all the food for the film. So it is absolutely authentic. And a lot of the closer preparation work and, you know, the, the kind of the beauty shots, the plates I, I did later. Um, I spent days shooting food. Um, I love shooting food. I just love and I love shooting prep, but she got it all together on the set. And then, yeah, it's pretty much, I mean, we, it, it was pretty much prepared the way that we do it. We just instructed people like, you know, don't, don't eat the calamari right now because it's been under the hot light, you know, for eight hours. <laughs> you know, look, but don't consume. So, we, but yeah, everything was, everything was done the way we do it. And then when we cooked it, when we 
everything was done very, very much the way that we do it. Just, I mean, I would have known. Maybe nobody else would have, but I would have known, and that would have that would have driven me nuts. We're releasing seven dishes for seven fishes, which is sponsored by the film, and and it's going to, you know, you will learn to do seven dishes, and it's pretty fun and cool and beautiful. And I, like I said, I'm just, I'm like, how can I get food into my next film? Because I just love <laughs> shooting it so much. I know I've been watching some of the, you know, about one to two minute short videos and I'm already planning when I can make the, let's see, I the calamari dish. I, I love calamari. So that that is going in. And um, I've had a, let's just say a, a, a fear is maybe a too strong a word, but let's just say a hesitancy about um, cooking salt cod um, because I, I think... I would be that person who does not change the water enough and everyone would be eating a giant, you know, salt brick um, in my salt cod recipes. I mean, that that was something that I think is stressed in the film about it is very necessary to get that salt out through. I think it's three days of water. Well, you know what happens, too, is when people haven't done it, you know, they haven't done it for a while and they just don't. They don't change it enough, and then they're all frustrated you know, <laughs> that day. Like, I overchange it. I'm so paranoid. Too. The first time I did it, I didn't. I don't think I did do it enough, but uh, yeah, you get it. That's a job. You know, that's a commitment. That for me, I take three days. That's a commitment, and just don't forget. Uh, but I love the way they used to do it back in the day. You know, like people. I've heard stories in my family that there would be a live eel swimming in the bathtub that last day or two before Christmas Eve, and it was this was some serious preparation. That's that's the other thing that I was that I was thinking about, you know, as we were talking about it. And, you know, with salt cod, obviously it's preserved. You know, you can you can buy it months in advance and kind of stick it in your cupboard and forget about it until you need it. Um, and then, of course, the three days. But, you know, where the where the film is set in West Virginia, in your hometown, this is not necessarily a place that uh, has great ocean access, shall we say. So I'm wondering, you know, how do you go about getting a live eel into West Virginia? Well, Certainly, 70 years ago, there were a lot more neighborhood markets and, and people would place their orders in advance and things would be, you know, shipped in. I mean, I remember my grand, my grandfather said that they literally would order a barrel of oysters. You know, I think that there was an effort on the part of the merchants to make sure they get what they need. Now, interestingly enough, there was a period there. It seemed like it was hard to get stuff. And we would drive up to the Strip District in Pittsburgh, you know, to like uh, the seafood place up there or to... Uh, Pen Mac or whoever and, and get things. But now I'm noticing even the sort of um, major retailers are, are, uh, are stocking, the, you know, they're stocking stuff, not, not eels. But. <laughs> but maybe, you know, Salcott or I suppose just as a, as a quick wrap up question, you know, do you have your, your fish or favorite meal, uh, not favorite meal, but favorite dish out of the Feast of the Seven Fishes that, you know, that's the one you always make sure you get a larger portion of every... Calamari and red sauce, hands down. I love it Damn. so much. <laughs> and are you also the one who is making uh, this dish, or is this something that you know your your wife makes? This is mine. That's a point of contention sometimes in the family that that one's mine. <laughs> well, you know that's that's all about family traditions, right? Is you have to make your claim in the ground. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. That was our conversation with director and writer Robert Tunnell whose new movie, The Feast of the Seven Fishes, is out now. And if you're a fan of great food movies, you are guaranteed to love this. Plus, there's a bit of bonus 1980s nostalgia. It's a win-win. You can also check out video recipes for the fish dishes featured in the movie on the website feastofthesevenfishes.com. 
We'll also put a link to the recipes on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. And of course, if you're in the West Virginia area on Friday, December 13th, 2019, you should definitely swing by the town of Fairmont to catch the Feast of the Seven Fishes Festival. We'll put a link where you can find out more about the festival on our show notes and on our website. We'll also put up some links to Robert Tunnell's graphic novel, The Feast of the Seven Fishes, and of course, his Italian holiday cookbook. This episode was written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Our digital director and in-house photographer is Mike Port. Special thanks to Robert Tunnell for taking the time to talk to me about his new film, which I highly recommend to any food lover out there. If you liked Big Night, trust me, you'll like this. Music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find out more information about this episode and all our back episodes at our website, thefeastpodcast.org. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at feast underscore podcast. You can also sign up for our newsletter on our website, where we release behind the episode information and a few tidbits about the upcoming season. And don't forget to subscribe to The Feast so you don't miss the launch of our new season starting January 7th, 2020. And if you have the time, please also take a minute to rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'll be back in 2020 with another great meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.